This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And knowledge will bloom on this episode. Mm hmm. Or kids. <laughs> Orchids. Orchids. What do you know about these? What do you know about these flowers? Wow, that was a good play on words. It got me. It doesn't mean anything, but. No, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean literally anything. <laughs> This is, a, this is a new comedy routine that I like to call yes or. <laughs> uh, this is a weekly book podcast where one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. We're also going to be talking about flowers this week. Mm-hmm. Why, mm-hmm. Andrew? Because I read The Orchid Thief by Susan Orléans or Orlean. Orlean, as Americans pronounce it. I think as she pronounces it, sure. She's I mean, it's like it's like one of those cities in Ohio that's named after like Lima, but they call it Lima. Versailles, yeah, Versailles, <laughs> the best one. Versailles is the best one, <laughs> especially when you because like I only need to think about it every few months, so it's always funny when it comes <laughs> you always up. Always remember Versailles, Ohio. <laughs> anyway, it's a nonfiction book, a rarity for our yeah. show, but it's. April Mostly showers about, bring May flowers. Yeah, May, yeah, yeah. Yes, and and it is, uh, but it's still got a lot of stories in it. It's uh, focused a lot of it on a guy who seems to only tell stories that might be fictional. So okay, <laughs> so I think it still fits. I think and it'll work. I I don't remember if you've ever seen the film, Andrew, but I was excited that we were going to cover this book at one hour patrons choice poll for the month of May. Um, Patreon.com slash overdue pod for more of those. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had seen the film adaptation, which was directed by Spike Jones, written so the by one with like Nick Cage and his head's broken and is a plant. It's I, I guess it's written <laughs> Wait, <let me laughs> by Charlie Kaufman, and they had been attempting. We'll talk about where this book comes from and all that stuff in a second. But like I knew this book existed because yeah, that's this the, that's ac- the one. <laughs> This Academy Award winning film by the guy who also goes on to make like Eternal Sunshine and uh, he had made Malkovich and stuff um, is about how hard it is to make a movie out of this book. Uh Like the whole thing is a meta text. (laughs) That's funny because I think in some ways this book is about how hard it is to make a book out of a New Yorker article. Yeah. Like it works all the way down. I think he. I'm fairly certain that Charlie Kaufman, I think it was like a whole thing where he shared at least one award, maybe the Oscar, with his fictional brother who is a character in the movie. Uh-huh. But because of the meta part, like he got a screenwriting credit. So he's like a, a not real person who like got an award or got a nomination <laughs> or something. Okay. Um. So yeah, that, that movie is fun. And so then I was like, okay, well, let's find out what this book is. And also I remembered that in 2020... Susan 
Orlean got drunk and went on Twitter and everyone had a good time because <laughs> it was just a bunch of tweets where she's like, I'm really drunk. I fell down, but I'm okay. It's like full oh, of typo. I, re- I remember this. I remember I where I was. was. I didn't know this. I didn't know this was her, but yeah. I remember this thread. It was a good time <laughs> and she's okay. So it's funny. I missed, I miss like good Twitter. Like, it was Twitter towards pre- the end of good Twitter. Yeah. Twitter pre 2016 was well, a yeah, different this place. Was, this was like a nice little reprieve. But anyway, um, you knew nothing about this book coming in? It was just, I know. I knew nothing about it. That's cool. That's fun. Mm-hmm. Um, did you know anything about Susan Orlean? No. Okay, great. So I'll tell you that she is a Neiman and Guggenheim fellow. She grew up in Cleveland, not Versailles, Ohio. <laughs> but she in- would probably know of Versailles, Ohio. Oh, yeah. I yeah. Mean, come on. Uh, born in 1955. She studied at the University of Michigan. Would move to Portland. If you can call that studying, go Bucks. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> I refrained from saying mistake on the lake earlier out of respect for our author. <laughs> for Cleveland. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, she doesn't live there anymore, does she? <laughs> no. Um, she moved to Portland for and lived there for a while. She wrote for like an alt weekly uh, newspaper and magazine. And then she was planning to be a lawyer, but then started getting stuff picked up and published. Um, in Rolling Stone and Village Voice, she would go on to write for the Boston Phoenix and the Boston Globe, and she is now and has been for a very long time a staff writer at the New Yorker. Oh, um, I still don't understand their cartoons. And uh, recently, she did some writing on the HBO show. I think it's on HBO. How to with John Wilson. Okay, which is not a show I understand. I I know people like it. Mm-hmm. It's not Joe Joe Para talks to you, which is the other one about a guy who does something, mm-hmm. and his name's in the title, <laughs> and they're like kind of alt comedy things, I think. Mm-hmm. But now I'm just thinking about the rehearsal. That's what I'm saying. Yes, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> uh, remember that. Anyway, that is, that- <laughs> I think as upset as I've seen Susanna in recent memory was Yo. her watching. Just the first episode of the rehearsal before it even really goes off the deep end. Yeah. And just questioning what reality was. Yeah. Laura wouldn't let me talk to her about that show. You know, Susanna would. <laughs> she she knows that I watched it. And she's like, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to be anywhere within earshot when you're watching it. I don't want to, this show in my life at all. This is a real thank I you. Just have a vivid memory of our friend Catherine standing next to the television, looking at us like we were in a zoo, like trying expecting us to. Yeah, she wanted to see what we were going to do, as though she had rehearsed this with. She was rehearsing a review. Anyway, um, Susan Orlean's first book was called saturday night uh one sounds of, fun one of the reviews i read of the orchid thief referred to it as her first novel length work she'd been writing you know long feature magazine articles um and they i think referenced saturday night as being a like more of a vignette based book it doesn't have one subject the subject is saturday like people like it's a bunch of slices of life of what different people in different walks of life do on a Saturday evening. This is still a lot like that. Like, it's, okay. it's not everything comes back to being about like orchids and about Florida, especially. We're going to talk about yeah. a lot. Oh, boy. Um, but it is, it's some, I don't, it, it doesn't always feel like 
she's playing for length, but it does feel like every character's entire background is like stretched out and, and discussed and, okay. And, you know, itemized for you, whether it like substantially adds to the main story directly or not. Yes, sure. Um, this would but be then her... what? What do you think the main story is? It's a whole. It's a whole thing. So we're going to talk about. Um, it. That's this is her second book. As I said, um, it, so it came out in 1998. Go go um, 90s. We'll we'll talk about the origins of it in just a second. Her other books include Life's Swell, which is a great awkward title to say out loud, uh, which would go on to be adapted into the film Blue Crush, which I think I saw on a plane to <laughs> Florida. Mm-hmm. In high school. Cool. Um, Sounds like a bad drink. Blue Crush? Yeah. It's about surfer girls. Okay. Um, in 2011, she wrote a biographical history of the dog actor Rintin Tin. <laughs> this lady rules. <laughs> um, this all sort of plays into her, what she's talking about in this book. There's one quote that I yeah, think hit is, me. it's like a third of the way through and yeah. it serves as I think the best thesis statement for the, not just the book, but like how the book is written and the the way she seems to choose her subjects. Uh, the world is so huge that people are always getting lost in it. There are too many ideas and things and people, too many directions to go. I was starting to believe that the reason it matters to care passionately about something is that it whittles the world down to a more manageable size, it makes the world seem not huge and empty, but full of possibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like, what so if just you... like get way, this is me on the Thomas and Friends wiki reading of trying trying desperately to understand why the fourth series is suddenly all about these narrow gauge trains with weird names who i've ever never met before it's like where's thomas you know every, i made a funny meme i made a funny meme about it. i'm gonna send it to you every wiki mod is an orchid thief is what you're saying like yeah. everyone who cares enough to mod a wiki mm-hmm. might as well be an orchid thief yes mm-hmm. um so yeah, she wrote the Rinton Tin book, and then in, I think it was 2018, I could be a little wrong about that, she wrote a book called The Library Book, um, which but was... That's, that's hard to... <laughs> was, the, was the thesis behind this one, can I write a book that is impossible to Google? We'll see. <laughs> it was inspired by a school project that her son, um, son from her second marriage, was working on in school... Uh, about the L.A., because she lives in uh, L.A. now, I think, in, on the West Coast. Uh, the L.A. Central Library, w- like, there was a fire there in 1986. And so she starts writing about that, and then it turns into uh, a book about libraries. Um, yeah, that's a great Thomas and <laughs> Friends meme. <laughs> Thanks, I Butterfly send- Guy. I made it to send to Susanna. Sometimes you just got to make a meme that's expressing the extremely specific thing that you're feeling when you're meeting like your 17th new train yep. in three episodes of a <laughs> children's show from 30 years ago. Uh, two other short story collections, not short story, but like uh, different collections that she has. The Bullfighter Checks Her Makeup and My Kind of Place. Um, so this article, this book is based on an article that she wrote in that came out in the 1995 edition 1995 edition is the January 23rd, 1995 issue of a magazine. <laughs> Wasn't it the New Yorker? Right. The New Yorker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and she w- gave an interview to where was this WLRN Miami uh, in w 2021. Learn. An educational radio station. Yeah. Um, 
talking about the book 20 years later and they asked her about uh, like where it came from. And she said, I remember it vividly. I was flying back through Miami. I began just looking to see if there was anything to read in the seat pocket. Someone had left a copy of the Miami Herald. My eye fell immediately on a headline that said something to the effect of local nurserymen arrested with rare orchids. I sound like I thought that sounds like an interesting story. I started reading it and it was a baffling little news story about this guy's arrest. And none of it made sense to me. I couldn't understand why someone would be arrested for having orchids. I think that was my first question. And my second <laughs> question was, why would someone steal orchids? And I couldn't imagine why you would steal them rather than just going to Home Depot and buying them. Uh-huh. Um, and she says, even though New Yorker stories are quite substantial and pretty long for a magazine, I just felt like there was so much more to say. As I came to the end of writing the New Yorker piece, I called my agent and said, I know this sounds crazy, but I want to do a book about it. So like... I didn't. That was something that struck me was that even as she's writing this article, it's not super long. You can go find it and read it. It's not a super long read, um, but that she's like, "No, nah, it's a book. I got more to say. Yeah, there's stuff to talk about." Yeah, it's it's the. You can clearly tell that she thinks that everything in this book is is fascinating, and usually she does a good job of like translating that to the reader. Okay. Um, I think some some of those little excursions are more interesting than others, and and also you kind of find yourself as you as you continue reading the book to be like, okay, I think I understand it. enough about this one like orchid grower's grandfather and how he came to Florida and took all the land and made all of his money. <laughs> but <laughs> could could we get to like the next bit of the main story now? Sure, mm-hmm. sure. Well, why don't you start telling me about this book and about these flowers and about this guy who steals them? This fella, this orchid thief, the titular orchid thief, is this guy named John Edward LaRoche. Okay. And he was arrested for going into a swamp uh, that was on native land. Like it was like the Seminole tribe yep. is the mm-hmm. one that is uh, brought up a bunch in this book. Um, he goes with three members of that tribe to grab orchids out of out of the swamp and even though the swamp is like protected wetlands and you're not supposed to take you know exotic plants out of it but he believes that he has found this loophole in the system because uh natives through their own like treaty treaty uh like prior treaties have been told that they can do whatever they want and so he's like okay i'm working for the tribe I'm going to direct them, but I'm not going to actually take anything myself. <laughs> okay. And that's how I'm going to get these orchids out of this swamp. Cause he's technically like working with them on this big, like nursery thing. But the guy is just like, I, I, it, it he is a shyster and it is hard for me to, <laughs> cause Orlean seems like just like thoroughly snookered by him. It's and it's, not in a way where I think he's necessarily like getting something over on her. I think she uh, she understands everything about him that's a little shady and a little yeah, sure, just like a a guy running his mouth. <laughs> but, <laughs> but he also she also seems like charmed by and to have like infinite patience for this behavior on his part. Yeah, okay. Um, like there's this moment, and this really crystallized for me how I felt about John LaRoche is there is this moment where he is working, you know, he, he is working with the tribe to, to make this plant nursery happen. 
and he goes and he's like intentionally wearing um i forget which team it is because not in the quote that i highlighted but it's like an an old and intentionally racist like tomahawk sports team logo or something great and he's worn it there like with the express intent of antagonizing them oh and then he after this and like many weird like personality clashes and and mismanagement problems later gets fired from his job heading up this nursery for them uh he says laroche suspected this is what orlean writes laroche suspected that the tribe had decided that crazy white man was no longer welcome on the reservation but he wasn't sure why goddamn politics probably he said at the time (laughs) christ i can't even believe that i'm dealing with this it's like no maybe it's because you have no business plan and you're kind of a jerk. <laughs> but like this is the kind of like kind of eternally the victim and not uninteresting and not like unearnest in his like interest in these plants but just like always always right, always the victim of whatever system, like the only guy in the entire world who's not an idiot. Does, yeah, it, you know what I mean? It doesn't You know this seem, kind of personality? <laughs> I know, I know this type of personality, and it's not, he doesn't seem like a full-blown con man. No, As not much quite. as he is someone whose truth always bends a very specific way that he can kind of sit in and hang out. It, his truth bends around him like a little hammock that's just for him. <laughs> All the time. And you know, he was right. This is LaRoche talking. You know, he was right. When you think about it, if you could find a really nice looking long grass, some cool new species, and you could produce enough seeds to market it, you would rule the world. You'd be completely set for life. He crushed out a cigarette and steered with his knee while he lit another. I asked him what he had done with the square inch of grass. Oh, I'm not into long grass, he said. I think I gave it away. <laughs> so it's like, eternally, like, near these schemes that he insisted would be, like, get-rich-quick things. But then he doesn't follow through or yeah. he chooses not to create evidence that his version of reality is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's just like this kind of stuff. So you spend the book, a, a lot of the book, but not not by any stretch, like most of it, with this guy. But this is the this is your entry point and your exit point, And then you just check in with it over and over again. And it's the LaRoche is the hub around which all the spokes of this book. Okay rotate sure um what the book is really about is what do you know about florida man as a concept i was going to say he's (laughs) i think the book might be about more than just florida man but it does feel like he has big florida man energy this book is is replete with with florida men (laughs) for people for people who who aren't aware florida man a marsh, ever, a marsh of Florida men. Have you ever played? Let, let's do. Let's play this game live right now. Okay. Um, Google Florida man and then the your birthday, not like the year, but just the birth date. Uh, and the first result that comes up is the Florida the the Florida man that you are. So mine is Florida man had live grenade, comma clown mannequin inside truck. <laughs> Florida man arrested after attacking customer with scissors taken from the counter. <laughs> that was last year, Florida man. <laughs> the way that it's so it's it's this play on the way that newspaper headlines are written 
where it's just like some guy did uh, a weird thing, like the, just some version of like a but you know man bites dog story. But the way that they write it, and it may happen intentionally now because it's like a known thing and a meme from a while ago. Uh, but the the running joke became that this was all the work of one individual named Florida Man, <laughs> and that all of this wild behavior could be attributed to <laughs> to Florida. Man. I under I always understood the Florida man thing. I I think I had it explained to me as like why it happens mm-hmm. is because of there there I think there are some public records laws in yeah, Florida yeah, yeah. that make these records like very available to the news with all of the details. And so you get these like arrest reports and and you know incident reports. Mm-hmm. Um, that not other places have, and so yeah. it always describes them as Florida man. But the, the 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 impression that it creates is that Florida is this colorful, lawless swamp where people are constantly getting into low level, occasionally like funny, occasionally benign, occasionally like sad antics that what's don't the, that don't happen anywhere what's else. What's the name of the of the character from the Good Place? Um. Oh, uh, now that you, uh, Jason, right? Jason. Jason yes. has like lovable Florida man energy. Yeah, a little bit. A lot of Molotov cocktails, but that, for good the line vibes. That, that he has, yes, whenever I have a problem, I throw a Molotov cocktail and then boom, I have another problem. I have a different problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that's all. That is very Florida man. And so this book is full of these colorful characters, often like low level shysters usually there's some just really bizarre thing about them um and and the book so the book is full of them it's full of descriptions of the landscape of florida as this super lush place where everything is always growing but also like a swamp that people filled in so they could sell a bunch of land to rubes yeah okay um, just like a place where a million orchids and a million scams all have <laughs> bloomed throughout sort of the course of, of modern Floridian history. Yeah. Well, and it, it's my understanding, and I'd be interested to know how the book frames this. Like, right, she's reading about this dude, this titular Florida man, after he's been arrested, I think after his court case. Mm-hmm. Or maybe while his court case is going on, and so then she's talking to him and like getting his version of does she, does she talk about how she meets him? Does she talk about what how this whole thing comes to this story in and of itself comes to pass? Like the story of her going down yeah, there. Yeah, it's, yeah. She doesn't really. It's it's been a while since I've read the beginning of this of this book. Sure. But I don't I don't think she goes into the whole thing that you just went into no, about no, like no. reading the reading the newspaper article and then wanting to go down though. She does have the newspaper clipping in there eventually. Okay. Um, the beginning of the book is just kind of gets it. It's a little bit of LaRoche stuff and then it starts getting into orchid stuff. Let's talk about orchids. Cause that's what, that's what, that's the other thing the book is about. It's like the book <laughs> is like 20% about LaRoche, like 40% about Florida man and 40% orchids. And then, that's 100%. And then, right? bonus, and then bonus percent. And then there's Susan bonus Orleans percent about other stuff. Yeah, yeah. okay, mm-hmm. sure. She's she's in there but mostly as a, a a body with eyes that you see through. Like she okay. doesn't 
she sometimes you sometimes get a sense of what she thinks about a given situation, but usually in a in a way that I think is pretty typical of her mainstream journalist. You can kind of sense her not trying to be part of the story too much. Interesting. Okay. Um, so like the, the, the extent to, to which she's in the story is like, she's gives, she gives those little splashes of perspective about like the thing I, I read you about, you know, focusing in on something to sort of make the world seem like a more yeah, yeah. knowable, like tameable place. Um, and there's a thread throughout where she really wants to see a ghost orchid, which is a, a particularly rare kind of orchid that only blooms like intermittently, like once a year. Um, spoiler, she never does. Uh, the end of the book, <laughs> the, the end of the book builds up to it. And then because she didn't see one, she gives herself a little out where she's like, you know, it's better that I didn't see it because then I can, you know, it can always exist as a, as a, thing that could have been in my mind and I'll never have the opportunity to be disappointed the, by it. <laughs> I don't want to, like, I honestly, I don't think I want to spoil the last like act of the movie adaptation. If people haven't seen it uh-huh. because it goes places that do not, that are not real and are more outlandish than seeing a ghost orchid, but they yeah. seem drawn out of the, the fact that like, the climax of this book is her not seeing a flower. <laughs> yeah, like the, the <laughs> you know, to the extent that the book hangs together on one like narrative that's about anything. It's yeah. just like she ends up in this total like cul-de-sac, lost with LaRoche in a swamp, looking for a ghost orchid. He's lost but won't admit it. Just like pure LaRoche all the way to the end, <laughs> and then she doesn't get to see the thing that she came down to see, and then she leaves Florida, and then the book is. <laughs> yeah, and then and then the we we get to read all about it. So hey. I don't know. Maybe she got to see a ghost ghost orchid later, and I don't know about maybe. it. But the I think the most interesting parts of the book for me were just stuff about orchids and orchid subculture because it's all pretty wild. Yeah, that's what orchids I've learned. Are these very persnickety flowers that are endlessly sort of mutatable and. Always like there are tons and tons of different varieties and people, um, people clone, clone them, uh, to, to sell them. People, uh, make like hybrids themselves. And the thing about them is that they only bloom after like seven years. And so you never know if you have gotten the hybrid with like the exact characteristics that you want, that you think are going to sell because they're like, there's like meta to orchid collecting, right? Like they have these big orchid shows and people come and they bring their special orchids and they win prizes. And like this influences the kinds of orchids that people want to buy. And so it influences the kinds of orchids that people want to grow, but everything is happening on such a, like with such long lead time that it is, can be like hard to predict what you're going to get or if you're going to have a thing that anybody wants. Like video game development. Yes. It's just like a long time or like making a processor. Also that, yeah. yeah. When you bring it to market, who knows if the market's there? And there are a bunch of orchids in Florida that are only there because like seeds blew in on hurricanes from somewhere else. Like yes. it's, it's orchids Love are it. pretty neat. I would never we have a Lego orchid and that's about as much plant as I want to be responsible for inside my home. But <laughs> we just got a new plant. A goldfish plant? Is that a thing? 
I don't know. Gold? You're the you're you're fish. the one who owns the plant. You tell me. We literally bought it the other day. Yeah, it's a gold. It's the goldfish plant. We're gonna put. We put it in our window. It's got some small look flowers. Look like gold, Look like look like a little goldfish crackers. I don't know that it looks like goldfish crackers. I don't know why. Oh, it's because the red orange flowers are like the color of goldfish. Huh. Um, but I have some orchid facts here. You can tell me if they're in the book and I what you think to about them. Hear your orchid facts. So I have a few from 1-800-Flowers.com. There's a blog. I mean, that's those are the that's the authority. Um, what main thing is that you know you said the the blooms certainly they can there can be a long cycle in between them, but the blooms can also last for months. They're like a flower sure. that will stay in bloom for a long time, which makes them very enjoyable. They're one yeah, of the, a, lot, a lot of variability there, as is. As is the oh, as yeah. is orchids want, but yeah. they're one of the oldest flowering plants known to humankind. We just have like known about them and and done things with them and had them for a long time. Um, Victorian era wackos were really into orchid collecting. Does she go into <laughs> yes, the orchid she, delirium she go, stuff? She goes into orchid delirium. Yes, it sounds like it's like an even worse version of tulipomania, which was like a whole big like boom bust thing that happened. Yeah, or it's a little, it sounds like it's a little like Funko Pops. It does sound a little like Funko Pops. You're mm-hmm. right. If mm-hmm. you an orchid for every character. Well, and that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, from I learned on orchidbliss.com, um, like people, no, this is not real. Um, orchidbliss.com, <laughs> not all people are perfectly symmetrical, as I was going to say. Is that orchids are zygomorphic? Sure. Does she talk about that? Does she talk about Do how tell, orchids... T- define what zygomorphic is, and I'll be able to tell you. It means that they can only be cut in a mirror image on a single like plane or line. Huh, like she didn't most, talk about that, no. Like, imagine how you cut a pizza. If all the toppings on a pizza were perfectly laid in like in the exact same way, uh-huh. and then you cut, you have so many options to cut a line and have mirrored sides of the pizza, right? Uh-huh, Okay. Orchids are not that way. Orchids are shaped in such a way that you could only fruit ninja through like one way one to make it, of it. Yeah, mirrored, okay. right? All right, which is not common. It makes them very interesting. Is that like just the flower part, just the flower part. Okay, yeah. all right. Um, some of them smell great, and some of yes. them smell like rotting meat. Yeah, she goes into that. A lot There's of, one a lot that of looks stinks. like a bee. Okay. <laughs> Did you see that one? I don't know if I saw the one that looks like a bee. There's there are definitely ones that like, um, oh man, okay. Yeah, you keep going. I'm yeah. going to try and find the section where she talks There's about. one that looks like a bee so that it attracts the other bee to go into it. There's one that looks like a bunch of tiny spiders are on it so that a bigger bug will come and eat the little baby spiders. Um. Some of their roots, and this is now I have from uh, the Smithsonian, si.edu. There's a whole bunch of stuff on orchids there. Um, I don't remember the exact word for it, but some of their roots, many of their roots will grow above ground. Their roots have like a vellum or something on them. Uh, They can get moisture out of the air. They will also take moisture like from trees and from other things. So they will often have their roots not just in the dirt, but also like growing around and on things. And that was actually how the uh, the other side of the court case, I guess the prosecution if would be a word for it, uh, beat LaRoche because the uh, 
the natives took the orchids, but they did it by like sawing the branches off of the trees that Ooh. they were growing on. Because if you do that, instead of just like picking the flower, like roots and all, you're more likely not to kill it. Yep. And yep. the prosecution's argument, basically, I mean, and, and some of this also, as was summed up by one of the Seminoles, was that, that they don't actually take our treaties seriously. Well, there's that for out of, for time out of mind. Like this is how it's been. But yeah, the, the legal case that he made was, yeah, there's, there's stuff in the treaty about wild plants, but there's nothing in there about just like taking a weed or like trees or something. Hmm. So you, you took this regular tree branch and you're not allowed to gotcha. Gotcha. And then the judge also didn't buy a LaRoche's thing about how he wasn't actually the one committing the, (laughs) committing the crime because the judge he was, was just like, talking clearly, to guys clearly about you it. clearly they were doing this for you at your direction after you thought it up so like, yep. yes you are still involved in this crime sorry what flower did you look up um just a big list of different uh here we go many species look so much like their favorite insects that they insect insect mistakes and for kin when it lands on the flower to visit pollen six to the body um Oh, another six, orchid. Yeah. Spe- in other words, the orchid gets fertilized because it is smarter than the bug. This is the part where you're, where we're all marveling at the the evolutionary miracle that yeah. is the orchid. Yeah. Um, another orchid species imitates the shape of something that pollinating insect likes to kill. I think you talked about this. Botanists call this pseudo antagonism. Ooh. <laughs> the insect sees its enemy and attacks it. In the process of this pointless fight, the insect gets dusted with orchid pollen and spreads the pollen when it repeats a mistake. Uh, other species look like the mate of their pollinator, so the bug tries to mate with one orchid and then another pseudocopulation and spreads pollen from flower to flower each hopeless time. <laughs> no! That one is really sad. <laughs> Lady slipper orchids have a special hinged lip that traps bees and forces them to pass through sticky threads of pollen as they struggle to escape the back of the plant. Another orchid secretes nectar that attracts small insects. As the insects lick the nectar, they are slowly lured into a narrow tube inside the orchid until their heads are directly beneath the crest of the flower's rostellum. Uh, some orchids have straight ahead good looks, but have deceptive and seductive odors. There are orchids that smell like rotted. Yeah, same. <laughs> there are orchids that smell like rotting meat. Uh, another orchid smells like chocolate. Another smells like angel food cake. Several mimic the scent of other flowers that are more popular with insects than they are. Some release yeah. perfume only at night to attract nocturnal moths. Uh, yeah, no one knows whether orchids evolved to complement insects or whether the orchids evolved first or whether somehow these two life forms evolved simultaneously, which might explain how two totally different living things came to depend on each other. Uh, the harmony between an orchid and his pollinator is so perfect that it is kind of eerie. Did she talk about how, I think this is most orchids or at least some, this was also something I, I came across on some of these various flower articles that they have a symbiotic relationship with a fungus called uh, mycorrhizal fungi. I don't remember this. Oh, so this might not be part of it, but it helps them get nutrients because their seeds lack endosperm, which is something that allows seeds to get nutrients from the ground. So they rely on this fungus to help their seeds actually germinate. And this is what made them... This is one of the things that led to early orchid fever, apparently, is that they were very difficult to cultivate until people figured out this fungus thing. So, like, yeah, growing I, I, them I, on their own was was more difficult and probably still is difficult for some varieties of orchid um, because it has this symbiotic relationship. 
Well, and she talks a little bit about like on the subject of, of orchid, orchid delirium um, that have you ever in, in days gone by scrolled by a bad ad on a social media site for like a jar with this like fully self-sufficient ecosystem in it. Yeah. A little terrarium thing. Yeah. Um, people like some English guy figured that out and that was what made shipping orchids from the Americas back to England. Sure more possible because otherwise you're just killing a bunch of flowers <laughs> nasty salty boat for a bunch of months um she talks a little bit about darwin's fascination with orchids and like this one where uh says the nectary was almost 12 inches long and all the nectar was in the bottom inch darwin hypothesized that there had to be an insect that could eat the unreachable nectar and at the same time fertilize the plant otherwise the species couldn't exist so without knowing that this bug existed he looked at this one kind of orchid and inferred from how the orchid was constructed that some kind of bug had to exist. And that turns out that a bug with roughly those characteristics happens to exist. So it's a lot of like evolutionary interlocking. Science is amazing. Yeah. I effing love science. Remember those days? Yes. <laughs> before That was before Neil deGrasse Tyson got bad at Twitter. Before right it was before it was all just like yelling at people for liking sci-fi movies yeah my first experience with that with that was him complaining about the movie gravity i'm sure he'd done it before that but he was a little too angry about that movie anyway yeah and it also didn't come out a million years ago i mean all of all, we're yes we're dating ourselves here with if and love science but yeah um so um, what was it like to read all this flower stuff like you don't not like flowers but i wouldn't say that like either of us are like big flower heads i don't go know? out of my way to know anything about flowers or to interact with flowers i can appreciate a good flower um, <laughs> whoa i'm not saying you can't <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to fight me i have a compl- i have a complicated anything that s- spits pollen and just mm. con- contributes to that. That's true. Your respiratory system. Shade of the, that green, like blanket of dust that's on everything for two months between yeah. May and July. Like it's, yeah, pollen. Pollen's rough, but I like I like flowers. They're pretty, pretty colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the. There's a bunch of little like since we've had a yard, I've noticed there are a bunch of like little phases of of flowers that you get. Like I, I we would get these little white ones, and now we get those little ones that are like. Those honey, I don't know if they're honeysuckle or what, the little ones that are like round on the top. Um, you get dandelions. I like dandelions. And you get little purple ones, but it's like they don't. Weeds, but they whatever. don't. Well, they're pretty. Uh, they don't. Uh, Henry likes dandelions. Maybe yeah, that's yeah, part yeah. Of why I like dandelions. Um, but yeah, they don't. They don't. They're just like little wild flowers, and they don't really overlap with any other kind of flower. They're just out there growing around. Yeah. I dig a Our flower. neighborhood is just lousy with carpenter bees. So well. Always see those. Big is there old an boys. orchid designed specifically for carpenter bees? <laughs> I don't know if there is. You have to ask Susan Orlean. But yeah, I that was. I think that was the part of the book that was more interesting to me than like this old guy. His dad sold orchids, and his dad sold orchids, and his dad ran a scheme to sell land in Florida. Like, <laughs> like there was a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, there was a bit of there was a bit toward the end about some Seminole tribe stuff that just that, that more than the other sections didn't really seem to have much of anything to do with anything, except that 
it was like tangentially part of the LaRoche case in the first place and like part of LaRoche's story. There's just this whole there's this whole thing about how he's very he's very mercurial and when he decides he's done with one of his hobbies, he's done with it and he just dumps it. And so yeah, after he gets fired from this nursery, she goes into a bunch of uh like loosely related seminal stuff just because the thread is there and there's no thread that she leaves unpulled in this yeah. in this book. That was something I noticed just kind of scrolling through the article. I did kind of a light skim on the original article and you I based on what I was reading about the book, I was like developing a quick little list of like, "Oh, okay, so she's going to expand on that in the book. Oh, she's going to have time to talk a little bit more about this." And it's not surprising that it's like, "Okay, like if if she were to reread her article during edits, she's like, oh, I could talk more about the hobby. I could talk more about orchids. Oh, I could actually like expand and talk more about the Seminoles. Well, it's like it's the kind of stuff that she like clearly when she was writing this article, she hit on all of this stuff. Like it just in, it's in, in the course of in the course of all the interviews that she was doing. And it's all like a, a lot of it ended up on the cutting room floor or like it just ended up being stuff that she had in her head as like background for the rest of the article while she wrote it and this book is the opportunity to ex- expand every single one of these things and and just relay every interesting fact that she'd found about it as as she goes and the the tension between like here's a bunch of cool stuff that i found out and here is one self-contained narrative chunk that is called the orchid thief that is a book by me susan orlean like there that's the (laughs) there's a little bit of a tension between those two things sure so the the two new york times there was a review i think in yeah you you go and i'll I'll make sure i'm looking there were a couple different reviews i found one of the new york times reviews i found covers like the general good responses that i saw so this one was by Christopher Lehman Hawk, seeing with new eyes in a world of exotic obsession, um, says, All that she writes here fits together because it is grounded in her personal experience, patiently befriending the impossible Mr. LaRoche, wading the swamp despite a lifelong fear of ooze, touching, feeling, and smelling a variety of orchids. If her narrative has a flaw, it lies in occasional tendency to report certain events and conversations to deadpan, as if it were self-evident why she found them uh, whatever way she found them. This makes for a few tedious stretches, but most of the time she lets the reader know exactly what she was feeling. So this is this contrasts for me with some other reviews I saw that is like, she's a little too much part of the book, or her interest is too much part of the book. And this one is like, nah, I like it because it's clear that she did all this stuff and she got really invested herself. Yeah. I, I want to, I want to like refine a thing I said earlier where I didn't, I didn't find her to be overly like involved in the book. I think her, her interest in, in the stuff and her like enthusiasm for it and fascination with it is the, is the thread that holds the mm. book together. I didn't really like experience that as oh, yeah. her being too much a part of the story. I just like, I guess I sort of just passively absorbed it as like the reason why we were all here <laughs> reading this book, you know? Yeah, no. Which um, is probably how she wants you to experience yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, here's a, a just a short little blurb in uh, Kirkus Reviews. Kirkus? Kirkus? 
Kirkus. If you, Mr. Kirkus, let us know. Expanded from a New Yorker article, this long-winded, if well-informed tale has less to do with John LaRoche, the thief, than it does with our author's desire to craft a comprehensive natural and social history of what the Victorians called orchid delirium. Uh, Orlean piles anecdote upon detail upon anecdote and keeps on piling them. <laughs> uh Enticing for those smitten with the botanical history of this success, uh, sexually suggestive flower, as for everyone else, there's little or no narrative drive to keep all the facts and many narratives flowing. So yeah, to the I'm, I'm I don't think I I wouldn't say I had trouble reading this the way that I have had trouble reading some overdue books, but it is definitely like the the narrative that is in here is like both too sort of light just as a narrative, mm. like, like you said, it ends with her not seeing a flower. <laughs> like it's yeah, not a well. super satisfying. conclusion. <laughs> um, and it's also like a little like doled out there. There's just not enough of it to keep doling it out at a good clip. Sure. So there's too much, um, diversion, I think in between the narrative bits for, for somebody to come here and, and sort of, be interested in this this thread of the organ thief, the thing that the book is named after, as opposed to and just want a to bunch follow of it all the way through ruminations yeah. on orchids or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the one New York Times review I saw the the quote was shows her it shows her gifts in full bloom, uh, as well as <laughs> as well as <laughs> flowers, as well as the challenges even for such a talented journalist of writing at this length. And that was yeah. the same review that also said that there was not enough of LaRoche to fill a book. Yeah. Um, there, there was an article I found from because LaRoche at the time is like this twenty-eight-year-old guy. Like he's just why in my he's in like because he was like born like in fifty-five. He's born in nineteen sixty-two. Wow. Yeah. He's That's got very the, different. He has got the air of an older guy, I think, because of the the fueled by grievance thing and the sort of fl- the the way that he moves from thing to thing. Like he he starts yeah. the book as this plant enthusiast and then becomes this like early internet era like service provider who like runs oh. a different company. And he's just like he he's clearly got some kind of char- charisma that people respond to. He's clearly got a level of like expertise and, and dedication that at least like gets his foot in the in the door in all these different yeah uh, communities, ecosystems, whatever you want to call them. But he also just it seems like he likes to talk a lot about like regrets and roads not traveled and 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 stuff in a way that reads older to me sometimes. Yeah, no, you know and everything I've read about this book, I assumed he was forty or fifty, if not older. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, no, he was he is not he was not that old in the like the early nineties when she was doing early to mid nineties in the when she was doing the research for the book. Okay. Um he's like late twenty something, early thirty something when all this so, is happening. That's so weird. Um, um and and yeah, there's just like he had the, there was this one court case, he lost it. They don't even spend a lot of time like there's no like courtroom scene or anything. Yeah. Um, oh, that's weird. I assumed there would be. Yeah, there, there's some stuff about the just like describing what the case was, and there's that the newspaper clipping of of what happened, and there is an interview I think with the, the somebody who was on the prosecution side being like, "Yeah, I really wanted to nail Laroche specifically because he was super <laughs> annoying." 
and I knew what he was trying to do. And so I crafted a case that like avoided the issue he was trying to bring up altogether. Oh my God. <laughs> um, Lawyers. So like it's interesting, but it's, it's not, it's not a lot of the book by volume, you know? Yeah, no, that's true. Um, there's by, a, there's by, a pay, by pound, you know, <laughs> I don't know. There's a review um, in the Chicago Tribune from Kirsten Lilligard. Um, interesting if you're like interested in this type of nonfiction. She kind of places it in uh, kind of a in context with other writers. Um, she says it resembles more than anything the new journalism or literary journalism pioneered by Gay Talese and Tom Wolfe. It's the kind of nonfiction that reads somewhat light fiction, mm-hmm. writing that should, as Talese believed, quote, seek a larger truth than is possible through the mere compilation of facts. Um, the reviewer says, Orlean has compiled an abundance of facts, and at times her work reads like fiction. Whether or not she has established a larger truth is uncertain. And the, the reviewer's main bit is something you said earlier, which is that it doesn't derides it for lacking coherence uh, in that reader's experience. Yeah, and I think there's, you know, that that one, um, we'll call it the nut graph in the journalism biz, that Whoa. bit that I read earlier about uh, Whoa. about the, you know, narrowing down on something. And then there's another, there's another thing at the end where she hasn't seen the flower. <laughs> oh, poor Susan. And, and she has to put a, put a, you know, she has to make it part of the book that she didn't see the flower when... Clearly, it's been building toward her seeing this flower and having some like profound realization about something. Yeah, uh, but Laroche has gotten him lost. He's being he's being a real a real dip about it. And she says, "I suddenly felt sorry for him for having had his heart broken again and again. And then I felt sorry for everything. Sorry for the people who didn't win anything at the orchid show, even though they had groomed and doted on their plants. And sorry for the way the Fakahachi had been plowed and burned." And stripped and sorry for all the people who'd bought a piece of imagined paradise in the muddy stretch of the blocks and for the Seminoles who wish they still lived in chickies in the wetlands and for all the crumpled up bingo players at the casino and for the hundreds and hundreds of Elaine bromeliads that had turned out ugly and were dumped and for Lee Moore who was just then on his way to Jacksonville with orchids in his van but instead of seeing the drab interstate in front of him he was dreaming of his city of gold in Peru and sorry for anyone who ever cared about something that didn't work out and I felt sorry for myself for being lost in the Fakahachi Strand with no idea of what to do. Then, like all sorriness, it hardened into something less stifling, and I suddenly decided that I would rather walk, no matter which way we went, than to sit here idle and frantic, spinning my mind like a tire in sand. I knew LaRoche wanted me to see a ghost orchid as much, or maybe even more than I wanted to see it myself, but now I really wanted most of all to go home. At this point, I realized it was just as well that I never saw a ghost orchid, so that it could never disappoint me, and so it would remain forever something I wanted to see. (laughs) Okay. And it's, it is, and this is, you know, there are two paragraphs left of the book and the two paragraphs are like, then we left the swamp and I didn't die in the swamp. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And and so, yeah, you see this, this effort right at the end and this like little rushed bit to sort of draw it all. Like so many of these little anecdotes and little stories that she went into just like drawing it all into this big. I don't know, this like list of people who she feels sorry for because well, their lives have had like some element of like disappointment or, or, or regret or something. I, I think it's the it. other side of the coin of you of like a story about really intense want or really intense interest or, yeah. you know, obsession or whatever. And then like her being like that just leads to disappointment. 
and I'm sorry that all these people feel disappointed. Mm-hmm. And it, you're almost, right. It it's almost a way to comes wrap down up to all like, the different strands. Yeah. It almost comes down to like it's better not. It's better, isn't it? A little better not to want things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like it's. Not, I don't think that's quite what it's no, saying. No. But I'm sorry for all these people who wanted stuff and were disappointed. And also, I'm glad that I didn't have to be disappointed because I didn't get to see this stupid flower that I didn't want to see anyway. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't think that she would make the argument that you we should want things. It's just some human condition kind of stuff here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but also, what if plants did if cool plants? stuff? And so yeah, like there is that. I I don't think you could argue that this is not Orlean inserting herself into the story. It's yeah. just that so much of the rest of the story is her being like in eighteen thirty seven. This guy got lost in the swamp. Um, Where's the, I pulled a specific, yeah. In 1885, a sailor on a plume collecting expedition wrote in his diary, the place looked wild and lonely. About three o'clock, it seemed to get on Henry's nerves and we saw him crying. He could not tell us why he was just plain, he could not tell us why he was just plain scared. Hmm. Just talking about the, the just the swamp, just the impre- <laughs> oppressiveness of a swamp in, in Florida. And like so much of it is like relaying these other sort of researchy facts Mm. They're just like giving them to you pretty straightforwardly. And she's not there and she's not editorializing much. Like there, there are a few passages where she talks about like some guy who is rumored to have stolen some orchids from some other guy. And she, like she just pr- presents all the, he said, he said stuff and leaves you to draw your own conclusions. Like maybe she's inserted in that way a little bit just because she's sure. choosing what bits that she chooses to, She's choosing what bits she passes on to you, and so she's imbuing it with her perspective in that way. But, I um, am finding myself grateful that this that this book kind of predates the trappings of modern like true crime storytelling, though. Already, yeah, the Orchid Thief podcast. Ugh. Like I'm sh- like I know I think she's done some podcasting, but I don't think it's like the same thing. And I and there are plenty of those that are enjoyable and they're engaging, but like everything, they get very tropey, and I just I. Do appreciate that this sounds like this book has ha, does not have that. It's messier. Yeah, know? and well, and I don't I don't go in for much of that kind of stuff. So beyond like the first couple seasons of Serial, I've just yeah. have not listened to a lot of it. But it it seems to me just from those and from seeing the format like written about and spoofed in so many other mediums, it does seem like often the end of these podcasts is, and then I didn't see the flower. Hey, maybe it it ends with like, it ends Mm. with not seeing a flower. I feel like this needs to be like a shorthand for a, an ending that isn't an ending. (laughs) And then we, and then we didn't see the flower and then we went home. Yeah, that's, I like that. (laughs) I'm going to put that flower in my cap and I'm going to carry it around and you can't see it. I feel like an orchid would be pretty easy to put it. If you, in your cap is they, they're big flowers. It'd be a pretty good hat. Yeah. Especially if you get the stinky, the stinky orchids. And what if you could wear a stinky orchid hat to the Kentucky stinky Derby? Stinky orchid hat. Where everybody's wearing hats and like, oh, mm-hmm. cool hat. And I'm like, yeah, smell it. Gross. Okay, cool. <laughs> Go around in public, in public place and tell people to smell my nasty hat. Yeah. That'll earn me friends and influence people. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you learned about orchids, Andrew. Yeah, it was fun. It's fun to learn about orchids. And the rest of it was fine. Yeah. yeah. It's fun to spend time with Florida Man. Florida Man in all his many forms. <laughs> his final form. Yeah. 
Uh, well, thanks for listening, everyone. You can tell us about your favorite orchid. Uh, you can send us an email, overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on social media at overduepod. Thanks to Nick Larangis, who composed our theme music. Andrew, if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. Uh, we have a Patreon project, patreon.com slash overduepod. If you want to support us directly, you can go there and you can get access to our Discord uh, where we talk about all kinds of different stuff. Uh, you can get access to bonus episodes early, including long read episodes. We're still reading through neil gaiman's sandman series one collected trade paperback volume at a time uh for a little series we like to call sand by me Mm -hmm. uh and sit in on bonus recordings a lot of other stuff uh craig what are you reading next week master and commander by patrick o'brien also made into a film in the aughts. I yeah, believe. all I can think of, like when you when I hear the name of it, all I can think of is like a guy in like a Captain Crunch. Yeah, outfit, Russell like Crowe in a Captain a Crunch costume yeah. playing yeah. the violin. That's <laughs> all I remember. I know it's better than that, but I don't. I mean, I don't know what that actual sailor outfit is called, but I wanted to make sure that people knew it was like a Captain Crunch kind of <laughs> sailor yeah. outfit and not like a like a white hat like navy. Yes. Like Navy guy, New York, New York sailors. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's not like, that. Kiss, like forcibly kissing somebody on a poster, on because a- you won because <laughs> you won the war, kind of sailor. Well, not that kind of sailor. God yeah. forbid. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's a it's a book with a lot of words I don't understand. Um, mostly about rigging. Cool. Can't wait to hear about rigging. Yeah. Um, Sounds like this book is rigged. And if you haven't gone and listened to it uh, yet, go back and listen to our bonus episode for uh, the 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie book adaptation, Mm -hmm. um, which was our most recent bonus episode. It should be on the main feed by now. Go give it a listen. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And until we talk to you next week, please try to be happy. That was a HeadGum Podcast.